go to Acts chapter 16 as we continue our journey through the Acts of the Holy Spirit. We're going to be picking up in verse 16, and I'm actually going to start not in uh, Acts chapter 16 this morning, but instead in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9, where Solomon writes, A man plan- a man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. One of my favorite Proverbs, a man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. And what we saw as we began chapter 16 is that very much playing out in the life of the Apostle Paul. He was just beginning the second missionary journey at the start of chapter 16, and Paul had a tremendous plan together. He was planning to go out and encourage the churches that they had planted along the northern edge of Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. And as they went along this northern edge, his plan was to go into the heart of Asia Minor, to take the gospel message to that fertile ground that was located there in the heart of the country. This was Paul's plan, and it was a tremendous Uh, the the issue with the plan was it wasn't how God was going to direct him. And so in two different occasions, uh, Paul was forbid to go into Asia Minor by the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't know exactly what him being forbid to go in looked like, but most Bible scholars, and those guys are super smart, uh, they believe that he was actually deathly ill. That he became very, very sick, and so he was not able to travel through that terrain, and they had to stay with churches that they had already planted, with people uh, that they knew so that they could take care of the Apostle Paul. And this also stands to reason because in verse 10 of chapter 16, we pointed it out last week, uh, that the tense of the book of Acts actually changes. It goes from being written in the third person about they and them to the first person about we and us. And so it makes sense that the Dr. Luke actually joined them in verse 10 there in Troas in our journey through Acts. And so he's able to now write from the first person. He's describing what was taking place for them there along the remainder of the book. And so what we find is uh, Paul was not able to go into Asia Minor, but instead, as he's there in Troas, he's given this vision by the Lord of a man in Macedonia calling to him, come over here and share the gospel message. And so this is the vision that Paul gets to go not to Asia Minor, but instead to leave, divert off of his plan and go the way that God into Macedonia, and in particular a town called Philippi. And so they arrived there in Philippi, and what happens is it was not as Paul had expected. Ever have that happen where God directs you and you're pretty sure, okay, you're, you're diverting me off of this path, but now I've got a vision. Now I understand how exactly you're going to work in my life. Thank you, Lord, for your direction. And then absolutely nothing turns out the way you thought it was going to, Right? Sometimes you end up in Charleston teaching the Bible. I mean, you just never know what God's going to do as he redirects your life completely and entirely. And so as Paul arrives there in Philippi, uh, there is, in fact, no synagogue because there weren't even 10 Jewish males there in Philippi to have a synagogue. And so instead, he goes down to the river where uh, Psalm 137 we looked at, they said that by the rivers of uh, Babylon will cry out for Zion. So when there was not a synagogue, where did they go? But down to the river. He goes down to the river, and there he doesn't see a man from Macedonia, but a woe man. There's a whole group of women gathered there along the riverside, and so nothing was turning out the way Paul thought it was going to. But nevertheless, he shares the gospel message with these ladies gathered there by the river in Philippi. And what happened is that a lady named Lydia and all of her household came to know the Lord that day. 
And so an amazing turn of events that this man from Macedonia was a, a woman from Macedonia, and she came to know the Lord, her and all of her household. And what we found out at the end of service last week when we were looking there at verse 15 is that Lydia was a woman from Thyatira. Her hometown wasn't Philippi. She was just there on business. But her hometown was actually a town of Thyatira, which is located right smack in the middle of Asia Minor. The very place that Paul wanted to go, the place that he had on his heart. He was going to go there. He was being directed there, or so he thought. But instead, he ends up in Philippi, and he makes a connection. Isn't it amazing the way God does that? He leads us in a way so that we can make connections. And so for Paul, he now has a connection to the middle of Asia Minor, the very place he wanted to go in the first place. And we know from Revelation chapter 2 that there was a church, in fact, planted right there in Thyatira. Jesus wrote a letter to him. And so one other place that I'll take you, because I love the verse and we looked at it at the end of service last week, it's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So for each of us, we are his workmanship. The workmanship was actually created even before we were created. He created us to do the work that he set aside for us even before we were born. It's a beautiful thing. This is what's taking place here in the life of the Apostle Paul as the Lord is directing his very steps. And that leads us still back in Philippi to verse 16 where we're going to pick up as they continue their journey through this town, this area of Macedonia that they were called to. Verse 16 says, And now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who has brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. And so we're introduced to another character, a slave girl who had an evil spirit, a demonic possession. And because of this demonic possession, uh, she was able to see the future. And what we're going to find is that now, uh, even the evil spirits, Satan himself is beginning to take notice of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Now, when we just start with that first verse, you have to ask yourself, does this sort of thing actually happen? I mean, can people really be demon-possessed and, and give, have certain gifts as a result, have abilities as a result, or is this just some type of a, a parlor trick? And I would tell you that oftentimes it is, in fact, a parlor trick, a, a magic act, a sleight of hand. Uh, but there are many cases as well where people can be demon-possessed and they can have certain abilities to see at least briefly into the future or other tricks of the enemy as a result also tell you that scripture is very clear over and over again we are not to be involved in such things because notice with me this girl was possessed by a demonic spirit she did not possess it it possessed her and that's the issue at hand when we begin to allow ourselves to be involved in these things is that we cannot we are we do not have the ability to actually possess these things we don't have the ability to control them they control us that's the issue at hand. We're not capable. And so this young lady is possessed by this evil spirit. And these men that own her are using her to make money from her abilities. Now, verse 17, this girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. 
But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. And so this girl now starts to follow around Paul and Silas and the whole crew. And as she's following them around, she is proclaiming this, that these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Do you realize that that is 100% accurate? That is, that is a true statement. And what Satan wants to do so often when it comes to tripping up people and tripping up the word of God from going forth, he doesn't first begin with antagonism or to come up against us, but instead alignment, to actually align, to come alongside, to seemingly want to agree with the message because what Satan knows all too well is that the messenger, if the messenger is discredited, so will the message be. And so in this case, he is coming alongside Paul and Silas. Paul notices this. He recognizes this. He will not stand for it, but you have to wonder why. I mean, the, the girl's saying a true statement. She was no doubt famous in all of Philippi. The word was getting out. The word of God was going forth. These men represented God and can lead people to salvation. What a great message. Why stop her? Because the motive matters almost as much as the message does, you see. And so many times, this is what happens even in churches, maybe especially in churches, is that we let a little bit of compromise take place. I mean, the word's going forth. People are hearing about Jesus, right? I mean, sure, it may not be quite right. Things are a little off. But, but the message is still going forth. But you see, the motive matters so very much. The messenger is so very important. This is why James says in James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, that compromise eventually leads to corruption, and corruption leads to death. That these things will ultimately pan out in such a way. And so this is why, why Paul turns, greatly annoyed, we're told, or in some translations, greatly grieved at what was taking place. And you have to wonder, when I first read this, I thought Paul's just annoyed because this girl is shouting behind them everywhere they go. This is annoying. And he turns around and just casts the demon out. But I like that the old King James says that he was grieved because you think about what he saw was a girl being taken advantage of, a young girl being used and abused by men who are powerful, who are in control, and they were extorting her for money. And so Paul was no longer going to stand for it. He was grieved, and he turns to her, and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. It's very important to, to note that, too, that Paul didn't do this in his own name. He did it in the name of Jesus. If ever you're in a spot to speak into someone's life, make sure you're doing it in the right context, in the name of Jesus Christ. It's important, especially, hey, if you end up at an exorcism, Make sure you always do it in Jesus' name, too, by the way. Because here in just another chapter or so, a, a group of guys are going to try to perform an exorcism, and they do it in their own name instead of the name of Jesus. And uh, what the demon does is uh, he beats the guy's clothes right off of them, and they run away crying. So if you don't want your pants be, uh, to be beaten off of you, sent running away, uh, you probably better do things in the name of Jesus. So just a little sidebar. We'll cover that when we get to it here in another week or so. So this is what happens. Paul commands the demon to leave her, and that very moment it happens. In verse 19, But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, 
they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. And then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes, speaking of Paul and Silas, and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them in prison, commanding that the jailer keep them securely. In verse 24, And having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And so what is taking place here is that when Satan cannot align with us, he moves on to his second move, which is antagonism. Anger, to come directly full force. No longer is he going to be in fight, but instead he is going to show his true colors, and he's going to come right after uh, Paul and Silas. Now, for the owners of this girl, uh, they're less than thrilled with this little exorcism because their source of revenue, their money-making ventures, had gone away. And what we find, this is kind of interesting, uh, in uh, the Acts of the Apostles, when you go through it, there's only two times that the Gentiles actually come up against the early church and throw them in jail. Every other time, it's the Jews and the religious that actually come after the church. This time and one other time when Paul goes to Ephesus, do they actually incite Paul and his crew to be thrown in jail. And both times, it deals with money. Isn't that fascinating how motivated we are by our wallets? Isn't that amazing? We'll give up all kinds of rights. We will give up all kinds of freedoms, but when it comes down to our wallet, now those are fighting words right there. We begin to take it very, very personally. And so this is what happens for these guys. They take this thing very seriously because it was affecting their financial gain. Now in verse 20, <clears throat> you'll note what they say about Paul and Silas. They say, these men being Jews trouble our city. There's the root of anti-Semitism taking place. Notice they didn't throw uh, Timothy and Luke in prison. They threw Paul and Silas. Why? Because they were obviously Jewish up against them because they've got something against them racially. Again, it's anti-Semitism taking place. And they don't throw Timothy and Luke in because what they knew is that any Roman would actually have to stand trial. Roman citizens had the right to a trial, not to be just automatically taken and beaten. And so Paul and Silas are now taken to prison. Their feet are fastened in stocks. Now, to have your feet fastened in stocks, what it meant literally was that they would sit you down, usually naked, on the floor of the cell, and take your feet and spread them apart to the point of being completely uncomfortable. You know that spot where you start that cramp in your hip? So kids, you, you probably don't know what that feels like, but it hurts really bad. When you get older, you get cramps. I don't know why, it just happens. And so they get your legs to that point and then fasten them together. Spread apart where you can't move your feet any longer. You can imagine now the excruciating pain that Paul and Silas are in after being beaten with rods. And in verse 25, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. <laughs> Look at the reaction of Paul and Silas. After being beaten, after having their feet spread apart and placed in uh, stocks, no doubt excruciating pain now running through their hips, the way they react is to praise. They actually are singing uh, hymns. 
I am so moved and motivated by that because I think how many times a trial in my life takes place and immediately I begin to cry out. I begin to whine and moan and complain. And you see, uh, trials happen in our lives for a couple reasons. Uh, one, and, and first, of all, first off, is what trials actually do is they push up whatever's going on inside us. It, trials don't create something in us. What trials actually do is they put pressure on us, and when pressure's created, whatever's inside comes out. So for Paul and Silas, what we see is what comes out of them is praise and worship because that's what's going on inside them. And so trials, for one, what they do is they create a character. Romans chapter 5, I read for you just a couple weeks ago, but I'm going to go back there again because it's, it's worth noting. This is what Paul said concerning trials. And this would have been after this particular trial had taken place in Romans. He says, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. When we experience trials, what it creates perseverance and character and then ultimately hope. Hope is what ultimately comes out of this. And what we find is as we experience this and we grow, we mature, we build up more character. I know nobody gets excited about growing in character, especially when it comes through trials, but, but we mature. We begin to, to trust in the track record of Jesus. Wait a minute, I remember he delivered me from that once before. I remember he delivered me in this way before. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to praise through this moment. The other thing that happens is it gives us a special perspective. As we go through and experience uh, different things in our lives, uh, that diagnosis, uh, that heartbreak, that loss, as we experience those things, do you understand you have a special perspective in an area that others do not? Other people don't know what that's like unless they're currently going through that. And so you become, uh, you actually have the ability to now relate to people. You can relate to someone who's going through a similar situation, a similar challenge. And here's what Paul says to the Philippians there. This church, when he would write a letter back to them in Philippians chapter 4, this is what Paul says as a way of reminding them how they're to handle the different trials that come up against them. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Paul, you see, has a little bit of credibility with these Philippians because how did they see him experience a trial? He rejoiced. He praised. He wasn't just telling them something he wasn't willing to practice himself. He, he did it. He handled it in this very way. And so he says to them as they experience trials and tribulations, rejoice in the Lord. And again I say rejoice. Moving on to verse 12 of Philippians 4, he says, I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned to both be full and to be hungry, to abound and to suffer need. What's Paul saying? He's saying I can relate to you. I've been on both sides of the spectrum. I've had plenty. I've not had anything at all. I've been clothed. I've been naked. I've been full. I've been hungry. I've been where you're at. I can relate. 
And in verse 13 of Philippians 4, this is one that we, we like to put this one on the wall and on bumper stickers, but it's important to note. He says that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How can I get through this? What's being pushed up to the surface? It's Jesus. This is the way that I'm able to actually go through this trial, through this tribulation. And, and lastly, to point out there in verse 25, note that the prisoners were listening to them. The other prisoners that were in the jail cell, they were experiencing similar things to what Paul and Silas were experiencing, and they were listening. And it's important to note that someone is always listening. Someone is always watching us to see how we handle a situation, something we're placed into. Many times it's not even our fault. We're just in this spot, and people are watching, right? And so this is the case and where they're at right now. Now then, verse 26, And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. Verse 27, And the keeper of the prison, awaking from, the, from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing that the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. So, we might ask, why should I praise in the middle of a trial? What possible reason could I have to praise in this spot that I'm in? Well, for one, the chains will fall off. <laughs> there will be absolutely nothing that can keep you chained down, restricted, held back in that spot of depression and anger and anxiety. It just goes over and over and over again if you praise. Praising will literally shake the ground from underneath you, and the chains will fall off. That's what's playing out here scripturally. Now, for the jailer in this spot, he makes a decision. The, the doors have opened. He wakes to this earthquake happening. He knows nobody's going to be left in this prison anymore. And so he draws his sword, and he begins to kill himself. Why? Well, because in, uh, according to Roman law, if you lose a prisoner you have to suffer the same fate of the prisoner you lost. Which for a whole prison that he was responsible for, he had to suffer the sentence of every single one of them, including death. And so making the decision, what he looked at was a situation of no hope. I'm going to be beaten and tortured and killed. It is better for me to just end it. And this is what a life looks like that does not have the hope of Jesus Christ. You see, when the shaking happened, and the foundation gets shifted all around, if you don't have the place your hope in, science, <laughs> medicine, really? The world, the government? I mean, where are you going to put your hope in that will not let you down? That's what this man is thinking about. The government wasn't going to take care of him. Practical modern medicine couldn't save this guy. Nothing was going to save this guy from suffering this fate. And so he had no hope whatsoever. Now then, verse 28 but Paul called with a loud voice, saying, do, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. So in this moment, the ground shakes, the door opens, the shackles fall off his feet. No longer is Paul bound, and he makes the decision to stay. I got to tell you guys, at this point in my life, 42 years old, a little bit on the heavier side, uh, I'm not the fleetest of foot. I'm just not. I don't have it, but... Let me tell you, if I'm in a prison and my feet, the shackles just fall off and Jesus opens the door, you're going to see me. i got a quick first step still. 
I'm taking off. I'm out of there. I'm like, I'm gone. You're not going to see me. Nothing but the taillights, just like Clint Black, right? That you're not going to see anything but the taillights when I take off. That's precisely how I'm going to roll. And yet, here's the Apostle Paul, and he stays put. He stays right there in the prison. He's been beaten and abused and tortured. And yet what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, speaking of tribulations and trials, if I can find it, 1 Peter chapter 3, Well, I lost First Peter. There he is. First Peter chapter three, verse fourteen says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. There he's speaking of the fear of the Lord. What Peter was writing about was uh, do not uh, be afraid of suffering for the sake of righteousness. Don't be afraid or be troubled by anyone that wants to come up against you for righteousness sake. That's important to note because uh, there are times where we can be uh, troubled and persecuted and it's not for righteousness sake. Uh, I've been persecuted a lot and it's usually because uh, I was a moron. That's not the same kind of persecution. Here he's speaking about for righteousness sake. Sake, And so the, the fruit, the payoff of that, if we suffer for righteousness' sake, is that you are blessed. That's the promise, that you are going to be blessed. And then not to be afraid, be prepared instead to give a defense. A defense of what? How do you have hope? What is this, what is this hope that's actually taking place? And so you see now the tremendous impact that Paul and Silas have Why? Because of the hope that they had while they were there shackled in prison. Now verse 29. And then for a light, the jailer now, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now here's this man. He knows these guys should have taken off. What he actually deserved was to fall on his sword. That's exactly what he deserved. No doubt he'd probably taken part in the beatings that Paul and Silas and the other prisoners had received. And so this man's entire life, his foundation had been shaken. And what does he find? Mercy. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. What this man deserved was death. Landing on his own sword. Instead, what he received was mercy. And so his question out of that is, What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be like you guys? I've never had hope like that before. I I don't even understand what this hope is that you possess. What must I do to be more like you? For each of us, you see, we have an aroma. That's right. You, You came to church, so I would tell you, you guys all smell. So welcome to church this morning. Every one of you has fragrance. Paul addresses this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 15. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To everyone that believes in Jesus 
What Paul says is that you have a fragrance. And the fragrance you possess is of Christ. And it goes up to God. This is the picture of incense in the temple being burnt and rising up to God. What he's saying is you have the smell of Christ to both those who are saved and to those who are perishing. Here in verse 16, And to the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. You see, you have a fragrance if you believe and follow Jesus. And to those who are perishing, you smell like death. (laughs) You smell like death because you're a reminder of all the ways that they, they are not going to have access to heaven. Of every shortcoming and every failing and every flaw, it is a reminder and it stinks like death. And this is the reality. For some of you, as you come to know Christ and you grow in him, you are going to have people in your social circle, friends of yours, who are no longer going to want to be around you. Because you stink. You smell. You're a reminder of what they do not have. Now, they're not willing to repent and simply lay their life down. But I think back, and there, there are whole groups of friends and people that will not communicate with me any longer because I smell. And yet, there are people who are specifically chosen by God for each and every one of you. And for those people, you are the aroma of life. To people that want to be saved, that are seeking and want something better in their life, they're going to look at you and go, what is that smell? What is that aroma? This smells like life. How do you have hope in this spot? How do you have joy in a place? Nobody would be joyful after that diagnosis. Nobody could be joyful in this spot where you've just lost so much. How can you have joy? That's the aroma of life, you see. That's Christ in you. And so this is what the Philippian jailer is experiencing. He's smelling this aroma of life, and he says, how can I be saved like you guys are saved? And in verse 31, what Paul says is you need to attend church regularly and make sure you tithe. That's not at all what he said. I was looking to see if you guys are paying attention. A little bit of church humor. He says, so they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. That's it. We have tried to make this so stinking complicated. We've tried to add layers and levels and all kinds of things on top. What it takes to actually be saved. And it's just this simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Do you believe? Do you believe he laid his life down for you? Do you believe that every one of your sins have been paid for? That the debt is paid, wiped clean? If you believe that you will be saved. Now, he goes on to say, not only you, but you and your household. Important to note that it does not mean that if you believe, your entire household is automatically saved. I've shared this with you before, that salvation is a one-on-one relationship, that God has many children, he has no grandchildren. It is a personal relationship. Everyone has to decide for themselves. So what then is Luke writing about? He is writing about the specific effect that leaders have on their household. 
Spiritual leaders in their home have a different effect than everyone else in the house. They have a, this is a God-given influence. Remember what we read about Lydia. Lydia came to know Christ at the beginning of this chapter, and her household was saved. Here the Philippian jailer comes to know Jesus, and what they're saying is your household can be saved. I read a study this week going through this. So this is actual science. Don't get mad at me. But if a child in the house is the first one to come to know Christ, the, remain, the remainder of the houses has a 3.5% probability of following Jesus. 3.5% if a child is the first one to come to know Christ. If the mother in the family comes to know Jesus, the entire rest of the house has a 20% probability. Way better than if just the kids come, right? Almost six times the number. So that's awesome. But if a father, if the husband comes to know Jesus in that house, the household has a 93% probability of coming to know Christ. I'm not trying to single anybody out, but I want to make it clear that men, we have an incredible responsibility in our house to lead. We have an incredible responsibility, and it's awesome. It really, it's terrifying at the same time <laughs> because we have a chance to be able to lead our families to know Jesus. You should take a hold of that. I think about how many years I wasted. 35 finally came to know Jesus for the first time. I was leading my family to hell, you see. It's a way different experience when you look at it like that. Now for this man, he has an opportunity, an opportunity to change. He has an opportunity to change the trajectory of his household. There's a reason that Satan wants to attack our houses, wants to split up marriages, wants to destroy families from the inside out because he knows the stats. Man, we gotta lead. We gotta take hold of our families. Now, what we see is a man, and some of us are going to fall into this camp. They're going to say, you know, I, don't, I didn't have any prior knowledge of Jesus. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't grow up knowing these things. So where am I to start right now? That's where we can start. Right now, today. This man was a pagan. He didn't know Jesus. He'd never even heard of the true and living God until his entire world got shaken up. Now, how did his household know that this man had truly been converted? I would submit to you it's visible. It didn't mean that all of a sudden he began to preach and slam his Bible and talk about hell and death like he was a Baptist pastor. He didn't do it like that. You see, they could see the change. Verse 33. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. This man, who was a jailer, who had people locked down, beaten up, no doubt was a hard man to be around to live with. The change was he took Paul and Silas and washed their stripes. He cleaned them up. 
Verse 34. And now, when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his house. And when, and when it was day, the magistrates sent to the officers, saying, Let those men go. And so the keeper of the prison, this Philippian jailer, reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. He was so excited. He came back to Paul saying, you're never going to believe this, but the, but the people in charge, they said, you guys get to go. And for the people in his house, they got to see a tremendous change in this man. An inside out transformation, not reformation, but a complete change. And what did it look like for this man? It looked like love. Lots of times we can question our salvation. I would encourage you, don't question your salvation. Jesus has said you're secure, and anyone he has in his hands, no one can pry loose. But there are still times where we ask, how do I know that I know that I know that I believe in Jesus? How do I know that he's at work inside me? Thankfully, that's the reason John wrote the entire letter of 1 John. Over and over again, this is how you know that you know that you know it looks like love. I'm going to go there with you briefly. 1 John chapter 4. Thankfully, John writes in circles, so you could read all of 1 John, and he says the same thing about 380 times, but John makes sure we get it. So in verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Thank you, John. In this, the love of God has manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation. That's the payment that turns away wrath for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. How do we know that we love God? How do we know that he's at work in us? We begin to love what he loves. What does he love? He loves his family. He loves the people of Christ. He loves, the, he loves people in general, but he specifically loves his kids. And what you'll find is as we grow in love, you will begin to love what he loves. Does it mean that everybody's easy to love? No, it does not. But oftentimes what we have to do is let our head go first and let our heart catch up. Ladies, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> Sometimes I got to love him in my head because I'm not feeling it right now. I'm not feeling it. I think about entire stretches of our marriage. Uh, she was just loving me from her head because she knew she was supposed to because I was downright unlovable. I mean, there's no way. But what happens is, eventually, as we love like that, our heart catches up. Our heart begins to come alongside us, and now we've got unity, right? And so we begin to love one another. Now, there's some of you, you felt that love at one time, right? You felt love like that, maybe when you first came to know Jesus, but no doubt what happens is, well, what happens is, you lost that love and feeling. Whoa, that love and feeling. You lost that love and feeling, and it's gone, gone, gone. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 
You lost it, Maverick. You lost that love and feeling. And it's gone, gone, gone. How can I ever get that love back again? And we've that at times. I've actually heard older people in church. This is fantastic to hear in church, too, by the way. You have a, a new believer come to know Jesus, and, man, they're on fire. They want to go for Jesus. And you'll have older people come alongside and go, don't worry. The fire will go down eventually. I'm thinking, yeah, so we can be just as miserable as you are? Like, what in the world? Like, why would you tell somebody that? But we'll share like that with people. Don't worry. The fire will go out. The flame will go down. God forbid. Jesus wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus that had this very issue. The fire had gone out. They were doing all the work of the church. They were working. They were doing awesome things for Jesus and in his name, and yet the fire had gone out. And what he says to them there is return to your first love. Go back to the things you did when you first fell in love with me. And so whatever that looks like for you, maybe it's a, maybe it's a Bible teacher you used to love or devotional you used to read every day or music that meant so much to you or, or journaling, perhaps that's it. If you're a guy, it's a journal. If you're a girl, it's a diary. It's very manly if it's a journal. But maybe that's you. Maybe you've been in that spot where you, you've lost it and you want to know how to get it back. Jesus says, go back to what you did at the first. Go do those things and watch the fire rekindle. Now then, back to our text, verse 37. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now they want to put us out secretly? No, indeed, let them come themselves and get us out. Now, this is a fascinating story. So they've been beaten, they've been jailed, they've now been released. Paul gets this awesome news from the Philippian jailer. Hey, great news, you've now been able to go freely. And Paul says, I don't think so. I am not going out that quietly. Why? Because Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. They had a right to a trial. They should not have been taken and beaten publicly and jailed until first they had their rights given to them. Now, the issue for these magistrates here in just a minute is if you take a Roman citizen and you punish them in an unjust manner, if you don't give them a proper trial, you as the magistrate or the city official have to suffer the same fate you exacted upon them. That leads a little bit of intrigue into the rest of our story. In verse 38, And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. ruh Reggie. Then, verse 39, They came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. These guys now come groveling to Paul and Silas because they knew exactly what was to take place. But I have to ask, at least when I read through this, um, if you're the Apostle Paul and you know that you're a Roman citizen, do you think maybe, just maybe, you're going to bring that up? I don't know. Before they beat you with a rod? Before they put your feet in stocks? I mean, at some point in time, I'm going to mention the fact that this is illegal before I get beaten with a big wooden stick. And yet Paul did not. But the wonder why. Why didn't Paul mention this earlier? And I think it's fascinating because in this spot, in this situation, 
Paul mentions this when he has absolutely nothing to gain. They'd already released him. They'd already said, Paul, you can go free. The magistrates want you to go on your way. And now he decides to bring this up. He has nothing to gain. And verse 40 sheds a little bit of light, perhaps, on why Paul did this. And so they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Paul leaves there and he goes right back to the place where this church in Philippi was meeting. And in him doing this, what he knew was he had a trump card on these Philippian officials. That these guys knew that Paul had something on them. At any point in time, he could bring up the fact that he and Silas were wrongly accused and beaten, which means this early church, you better leave them alone, guys. You better leave my brethren, my friends, the people I care about, this young church, you need to leave them be because I stood up for them. You see, for the Apostle Paul, he down his rights. He did not mention them out of love. And had he not laid down his rights, he doesn't meet a Philippian jailer. He doesn't get to lead this man and his entire household to the Lord. He then turns around and goes back to Lydia's house. And I think it's interesting to note, he meets there with the brethren. It doesn't say just the women. It says, brethren, there are now both men and women. Where did the men come from? These were those that were saved in the house of the Philippian jailer and him himself. The church got to grow. It got to expand, not only to women only, but now to the men as well are coming to know Jesus. Why? Because Paul laid down his rights. If he had stood up for himself, he would have never even been in that position. And yet in this spot, he now stands up for his rights out of love. Out of love for the brethren. Out of love for others. And as I think about this, it sounds an awful lot like Jesus. Think about the way he handled things in his life. When he was wrongfully accused, when he was being tortured and beaten, what we're told is prophecy from Isaiah, like a sheep before the shears, he did not say a word. Kept his mouth completely shut. Why? Because he didn't have to defend himself? Because he didn't have any way to be able to stop it? One word in 10,000 legion of angels would come down and put a stop to it. It was love that nailed him to the cross. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, in the great emptying or the great kenosis, he says that out of love he emptied himself. He got rid of his superhuman God powers and poured himself into the body of a man out of love and then took it a step further, humbled himself to the point of death, and not only death, but the death of on a cross, the most humiliating way you could possibly be killed in Rome. That's how much he loved us. And yet when it came to standing up for people he loved and cared about, what did he do when he arrived in the temple? He fashioned a whip. He was ready to whoop some people when his people were taking advantage of, when they were being abused and manipulated and used and so many times I think we get this completely backwards we are ready to stand up for our rights 
Me, me, me. How can I stand up for me? You're not going to take advantage of me. Well, them, I mean, they, they can surely figure out their own thing, right? I mean, I don't know that I need to stand up for them. If I go to stand up for them, it's just going to get messed What Jesus says is lay down your rights. Pick up the rights of people who cannot. Care for those that are unlovable. Unlovable. Your neighbors, your friends, the people in this community, those are the people for us to reach out to. Take up rights for them. Care that much for them. This is what meekness looks like. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And meekness isn't weakness, friends. Meekness is power under control. You have the very God of the universe inside you, living in you. There's nothing this earth can throw at you that you cannot sing and praise him right through. And the shackles, they'll have no meaning. But for the people all around here that don't know him, they are burdened and shackled and chained by abuse and neglect and addiction. They're being taken advantage of all around us. Who of those can we come alongside? What rights can we stand up for for them? That's a cause worth fighting for. So Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for the ability and the opportunity to lay down our rights. Thank you, Father, for the ability to be more and more like you every day. You give us that chance and most of the time I make up horrible attempt at it Lord thank you that you don't give up on us thank you that you continue to love through us I would pray Lord you'd help us to be a people that loved if we could be known by one thing as a church as a group that gathers here together would you let us be known as a group that loves that loves people anyone that comes in that loves friends and enemies alike Lord help us to be ones that love Father, we thank you for your salvation. We thank you for living inside us and changing us from the inside out. Lord, thank you that we get the opportunity to take up rights for people who don't even know they have them. Help us to be able to speak into their lives, Lord. Help us be an example of what it looks like to be a true, impassioned believer of Jesus. We ask all this in your name. All right, would you please stand? Let's sing our closing song. Come set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil while we're Like wildfire in our very souls Holy Spirit, come invade us now We are your church We need your power in us We seek your kingdom first We hunger and Refuse to waste our lives For you're our joy and 
surprise to see the captives' hearts release, the hurt, the sick, the poor at peace. We lay down our lives for heaven's cause. We are your church. We pray revive this earth. Build your kingdom here. Let the darkness be. Show your mighty hand. Heal our streets and land. Set your church on fire. Witness nation back. Change the atmosphere. Build your kingdom here. We pray. Unleash your kingdom's power. Reaching the near and far. No force of hell can stop. Your beauty changing heart. You made us more, much more than this. Await the kingdom seed in us. Fill us with the strength and love of Christ. Oh, are your church. We are the hope on earth. Build your kingdom here. Let the darkness be. Show your mighty hand. Heal our streets and land. Send your church on fire. Win this nation and change the atmosphere. Build your kingdom here. 